Today on Pence Exchange, misestimating world's historical population. Welcome to Pence Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today we will be joined by Timothy Guinan. He is the Emeritus Philip Golden Bartlett Professor of Economic History at Yale University. He is the Director of the Program in Economic History at Yale's Economic Growth Center. In addition, he's a senior visiting fellow at the Cambridge Group for the History of Population and Social Structure and a research fellow at the Center for Economic Studies at the University of Munich, among many other affiliations. His research has been published in the Quarterly Journal of Economics, the Journal of Development Economics, the Journal of Economic History, among other prestigious journals. Welcome, Timothy. Thank you very much for inviting me. I look forward to this. To measure is to know. That has been science's dictum since the Industrial Revolution. But what happens when our measurement estimates are wrong? This is particularly important to social sciences, where object of study and our tools are modular and ever-changing by complex interactions. Today, we will be joined by Timothy Guinan, who will talk to us about how inaccurate the world's historical population estimates are and the implications for economics, demography, and social science in general. Timothy, before we go into, into the details of the task of estimating data, I want to ask a more broader question about the nature of our discipline. What do we need data for? Can we do economic and social analysis without it? Aren't models enough to give us clear insights? And that's actually a great question, and it's one that I think we should always have in the back of our minds. Economics is a very model-driven dis uh, discipline, and I think that's what appeals to most people about it. And we, the problem is we need to have a dialogue between data and models, and we need to be clear about what we're actually learning from data. So my concern about, and this has always been a feature of the economics profession, but my concern about some recent developments is that we are sometimes confusing what is actually a theoretical result with something we know empirically to be true. We test theoretical results. We don't actually use the model to tell us what's true in the, in the real world. And the second thing is that more and more, I think that we're doing um, empirical work that really doesn't have a sort of solid foundation. And so we're, we're, we're confusing what we actually know with what we can sort of surmise given sort of the estimates that have been done so far. So in some, I think actually data is really important. Obviously, in economics, it cannot survive without theory. Theory is, is, is a necessary part of this dialogue. And how important is reliable data to economic analysis? I mean, it may seem obvious, but we would all like to have the best data available. But is it possible for data to be so big that by using it, we are led to a worse path than by not using any data at all? I, I don't know. I mean, I think sometimes that's possible. It doesn't happen very often, but I think that's possible. What concerns me is is the the way you pose the question is, is actually the way many people think of it. What worries me is that often we use data that is actually very weak, and we draw a conclusion, and then we go on. And what we need to do is to think, okay, maybe this is the best we can do given the data we have, but someone needs to come back to this and do a better job with the data and refine the estimates, et cetera. So, what concerns me is um, a lot of sort of empirical work, which really has a very weak foundation because of the bad data. 
and somehow that becomes the quote-unquote answer, and, and there's no uh, recognition really of just how tentative uh, those estimates really should be. So I guess the problem is not that there is not better data available, it's not that just the profession kind of just uh, keeps using the ones that already is available because it's already there. Yeah, part of this is a matter of professional incentives, and, and that's actually an important thing to think about is in my generation of economic historians, I finished my PhD in 1987, there were strong rewards for collecting new data and improving stuff, right? So I don't think anybody wanted to just write a paper with new estimates, but if that was part of, of revisiting or a question or going into a new question, that was strongly rewarded. Now I think that, that when people think of gathering data, what they really mean often is just copying tables out of a book and having people type it in. And without thinking a lot about what the source of the data is, what the problems might be, what else they should do. So some of this is just the professional incentives to getting better data are really quite weak. And um, that allows people to you know, keep doing stuff without any fear that someone's going to come along and show that there's better data. In one of your papers that deals with this topic, you directly reference McEvity and Jones' Atlas of World Population. And... I want to ask about it. What is the problem with it? Not maybe because of it per se, but because as you said, how other scholars have used it. So could you explain a little bit, a little bit about its respective importance in the profession? How did it become the standard for the historical population estimates? I should point out first, McAvity and Jones, this book was published in 1978, and I'm sure that both of the authors would be horrified if we use economists make it. They, if you just read their introduction, they don't intend it to be taken this seriously. These really are, in many cases, just wild guesses, and, and, and they have you know, no sort of clear reason for making that guess. Uh, what McAvity and Jones does is it purports to give you the population of every country, or in some cases regions, we should come back to that, in the world, usually from the, world, from the year zero, from the, 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 the birth of Christ in the Christian calendar, uh, at century intervals until 1900. Now, those of us who do economic history know that for many parts of the world, we actually have a pretty good idea of the population of a country in the 18th, 19th century, right? Many parts of the world, we don't. Before that, even in the places like Europe, where most of the research has been done, the, the population numbers are not much more than guesses. And, you know, seriously, in this book, it claims to tell you the population of, for example, Colombia in the year 300. And that is, you know, that is just pure speculation on that point. Uh, so the, the numbers they report are, you know, they're, they're, they're not really serious in the way we think of data. Now, how this became the standard is a great question. It started appearing in some papers, not by economic historians, by people more like historical development economists, started doing this, I think, in the early part of the 21st century. And then, you know, people see this thing cited. And the first couple of times I saw it cited, I just sort of ignored it because I thought, well, no one knows the population of every country in the world, the 500. And then I actually got the book and looked at it. And, and I was really, really surprised that, that people are actually using this for uh, this kind of purpose, for actually running regressions and so forth. And then I think there's two related processes. Everybody sees that somebody else is using it. So now you'll see papers saying, they, they basically defend using McAvity and Jones by saying this is the standard way to do this. It's like, well, I often remember my mother used to say, if I came in and I said, you know, I did something bad, but all the other kids did it, she would say, I don't care about the other kids. So I always say to graduate students, you know, sometimes the standard isn't really good, right? So you have to think about that. The other thing is, and I think this is an important part of the story, once you have replication data sets online, 
with the Michael and Jones population data piped in, people just download it and they use it. My guess is that most of the people who use that data have never looked at the book. If they looked at the book, they would really probably, you know, think, think again about what they're doing. If they just read the introduction, the introduction says just how skeptical they are of their own estimates. Um, so it's a, it's a curious process. I don't want to get too technical here, but I do want to ask what is the problem specifically with, with his estimates? Are their estimates biased in any way, or are there just guesses and you think that maybe we can do better than that? Okay, it, for the period before about the year 1000, clearly their guesses, and they, they actually say this, their, their guesses are actually designed to produce exponential growth rates. So they assume exponential growth rates in, in population. So if you find exponential growth rates using their data, that all you're finding is what they assume. They're very, very clear about that. But differently, up until about 1500, most of the growth rates in countries between two years fall into really round numbers. So, so I think it's in my paper, I have the details, but a very large fraction of countries, their population exactly doubles between the year zero and 1000. This should be an indicator that we're not dealing with you know, real, real actual numbers. Now, again, without being super technical, much of the paper I, I wrote, which will, by the way, come out next year in the Journal of Economic History, much of that is pointing out that this is not classical measurement. So, and it's, there's various ways to show that. By the way, McAvity and Jones basically say that. They don't use that term, but they, what they say about their data implies it's not classical measurement. The reason it matters is in classical measurement error, economists are used to sort of assuming for some reason that all measurement error is classical. And then that allows you to invoke a set of results, which actually allow them to sign any bias if it's a regressor, and then to say there is no bias if it's an independent variable. So again, without being super technical, just on straightforward econometric grounds, uh, this is going to lead to bias estimates in most, most of the ways it's actually used. Going a little bit further than just McEvity and Jones, I want to ask if this is just a problem with it or this is a problem in general with relying on secondary sources. So would you say that any kind of estimates that rely on secondary sources also have nuances that create problems if used without care, which I think is the thing that you want, you want to emphasize? For example, let's refer to Inglat's Domesday book which is perhaps the oldest survey of any European society. Would you say is that a legitimate source of reliable data? Or in other words, what is the difference between estimates and direct measurement for social science purposes? Now, the Domesday book is a great example. And I should say, I don't know anything about it, right? And, and that's important. I mean, before I would use the Domesday book for something, and people have, I would, I would learn more about it. And there's really rich literature trying to understand what the Domesday book my understanding is the Domesday book, they think, has very careful estimates of many things. Other things, they, they appear to be counting day figures, right? So um, it's something where you have to learn more about it. The more general question about secondary sources is really important. Everybody uses secondary sources. I do, too. That's, we all stand on the, the, the shoulders of people before us. The problem is, what kind of secondary source? And, and I know this sounds very funny, but a simple piece of advice would be read the source before you use it. Don't download it from the internet and start running regressions. Read it. It will tell you about the definitions, what they thought the problem was. McAvity and Jones is a really egregious example, but there's other cases you see where people are using a secondary source, not really realizing that if they read the book, the author says, here's the weakness of what I did, right? And, and you should be careful about using it for that purpose. 
where the author will actually describe their methods and you realize reading their methods that, well, you know, I really shouldn't be using this for this purpose because they probably fall, fell into some statistical trap that is, that is uh, well known. So I have no problem with secondary sources. We could not function without secondary sources. The problem is that you have to uh, read things. You have to understand what the data are, how it was collected, and what the author intended before you actually start you know, using it. Would you say this is a broader problem in general, not just for economic historians, but for economists? I would say that this is even worse for economists because, I mean, I always start kind of my question saying that economic history is useful because it makes you think about the data that you're gathering because the nature of what we do, we cannot just go to uh, any statistics bureau and just download the data. We can download some, but not all of it. But normal economies, I mean, not normal, uh, the regular economies that do another stuff, they can do that. So they really do not think any, any much about what inflation is or what the GDP is between different countries. Okay. I, by the way, I, I love your sort of implicit suggestion that economic historians aren't normal. Um, uh, I, I think it's a fair question, and my understanding is that many, you know, governments today spend enormous amounts of money, seven, and trying to refine stuff. And you, you probably know, for example, there's some debate about the consumer price index for the United States, how it's done. There's people who claim it overstates inflation. There's people who claim it actually the bias is the other direction. These questions will always be with with us, right? We, you know, we we are. are Data collection, even with the best intention and effort and so forth, is not perfect. And there's always concepts that, you know, like the CPI is a concept as much as anything else. So these things will never be perfect. I think what I alluded earlier to a generational change in economic history, I think younger economic historians, people who still define themselves as that's really their field, are still, you know, pretty attuned to these kinds of questions. One thing that's happened is there's a lot more people in economics who don't really think of themselves as economic historians, but they write historical papers using historical data. And I welcome that. I think that's a great development. I have no problem with it. But I do notice a tendency among those people to just use data from the past without thinking about what it is or, or um, any of the kinds of problems that I point out with uh, McAvity and Jones. Um, I want to say one more thing is I don't think we want to think of data as a binary, like good or bad, right? So to take an example, um, um, Wrigley and Schofield wrote a very, very influential book called The Population History of England, uh, which actually tries to estimate the population of England at every year from the middle of the 16th century into the 19th century when the census comes about. People have challenged that. People have various quarrels about the way they did things. People think that some years are off by a little bit, maybe more. Um, I don't think we're ever going to exactly know the population of England in 1541, but we can do much, much better than the guesses in McAvity and Jones. So it is a sort of Bayesian process where you want to just update the data. Um, one of the things I'll say about McAvity and Jones is we actually have better population estimates for many countries than they have in there because it was published in 1978. It's way out of date. So... Um, Madison, for example, who's now passed on, but he actually, in his database, started with McAvity and Jones and then updated it in cases where there was a new and better estimate. I think since Madison, you may be able to actually do better by consulting secondary literature as well. So uh, even, even for something like a population history, you can do better than in McAvity and Jones just by using a different publicly available database. We, of course, found usefulness nowadays in thinking about 
concepts like England, France, and Germany as a unified spatial unit. But in the past, borders were not as clear-cut. This leads to what you call in your research kind of to creating soft and hard clones, which is basically using, for example, Austrian data to estimate such data in the past. So how relevant would be this problem be in McEvity Jones and in demographic research overall? Okay, in McEvity Jones, I mean they're very clear about what they do. Yeah, I, 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 it's a, it's a wonderful book because they tell you exactly what they do in those cases. The problem, it, there's two problems. Again, the, the major problem is the way people use it. So some papers that have used the McEvity Jones data, they take a region. What in McEvity Jones is a guess about a population of a region, and you divide it into modern nation states. And they do so using some assumption about the relationship among the, the population of the modern nations. So I call those hard clones because there's no real information in that. All they're doing is they're pumping up their sample size by taking a region called West Africa and turning it into, I forgot how many countries, with, with essentially an assumption. Um, so that's one problem. And, and there, I think the real problem is just being frank about what you're doing. Um, in one paper, it was very hard for me to figure out what they actually did. They don't really describe it in the paper, and that's disappointing. I think you should tell people when you do something about that. In other papers that do this, they're sort of very frank about what they do. I think it's not the right thing to do, but they told us, so at least we know uh, whether to, uh, to trust that uh, particular procedure. Well, you're talking about something slightly different, which is also important but and requires thought. So you're right. There are... In the Austro-Hungarian Empire would be a good example. We know much more about the population history of parts of it than others. So people have, in fact, assumed that the population growth rate in, say, Hungary is the same as in Austria, two different component parts of the empire. Um, I don't know enough about the history of those two regions to know how crazy an assumption that is. But I think it's the kind of thing you can start with and then try to refine it and think hard about, you know, why might it be different, right? It's... It, as an assumption, it probably fails. Um, I mean, it obviously fails. But as something you can think about and, and use as the basis for other things, it may not be a terrible idea. Um, again, it, it all requires a bit more thought and care about the data than, than sometimes we see in, in uh, this kind of research. What is salvageable from Macavity and Jens returning to it? Or should we never use it at all? So we are better out kind of looking into other areas. For example, in terms of its scope, would you say, is there any specific bias in its treatment of different areas? Can we rely on it for a specific region like Europe and North America more than we can rely it in for South America and Africa? Um, okay, the bias is, I don't think the bias is in their work. Again, a lot of it's just assumptions, right? And this assumption of, of a constant exponential growth rate, that's just an assumption. I think the things like how is, is, is McAvity and Jones, their data biased today relevant to, relative to state of the art? That's, I think, the question. Um, for Europe, it's in the 18th and 19th century, many of the estimates are just simply wrong. For example, Wrigley and Schofield implied different population growth rates during the period of the Industrial Revolution than does McAvity and Jones. And that's a really important example because the population growth rate during the Industrial Revolution is key to understanding how welfare evolved in the Industrial Revolution. So any case like Europe, where there's been a lot of research in the last 40 years, it's way out of date, right? Now, there's another part of the world where it's, it's wildly wrong, but I think scholars more disagree there. In um, pre-Columbian uh, Western Hemisphere, there's lots and lots of argument about the population of places like what is now Mexico and, and the northern cone of South America. 
and, and this is really important for many, many reasons to understanding those societies in their own terms. It's also important because it helps us, it, it's key to understanding what the Spanish invasion meant for those people. Um, we think that the Spanish invasion led to pretty dramatic declines in population because of disease and, and a little bit less famine and warfare. But knowing the pre-Columbian population is just critical to understanding what it meant to have this imperial experience. And so there's a lot of research on the pre-Columbian populations. From my reading of that literature, and I'm not a specialist, but from my reading of it, there's wildly different estimates. They really don't agree in any way. So Maccabee and Jones is way out of date, but I can't tell you which direction it's, it's off at this point, because there's been a lot more work, but it, it really hasn't led to anything like a consensus. What are the main results that you think maybe nowadays are maybe wrong because we have relied on McKevity and Jones data? Or do you think that we need to be revisited? Are we at risk or maybe not understanding kind of the fertility transition just because people use this kind of data or, or, or not? I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting question. I don't know if people have really relied that much on McAvity and Jones for, like, the, for example, the fertility transition. The thing is that, that McAvity and Jones, I think, is relatively more accurate as you get closer to our period. And the fertility transition is relatively recent. I am sure that if you replace McAvity and Jones's estimates with the up-to-date estimates for a lot of countries, things would change. I can't tell you how much they would change. Um, I, I, you know, What we, what we know that is wrong is, is really a good question. Um, partly to understand what's wrong, we'd have to know the right population data, right? And we don't. I mean, that's one of the frustrating things about this. Is that often economists will say, well, show me the right population data and tell me how much difference it makes. I can't do that. I can't tell you the population of Nigeria in 500. What I have done in my paper is I've actually gone through a couple of published papers and shown that if you just drop From the analysis, things like these hard clones, these cases where they turn country, uh, regions into countries, the results disappear, right? So that the results they have are, are fragile in the sense that they rely on the inclusion of these sort of non-observations. And that's a relatively crude robustness check, but it does suggest that there's is a problem there. This discussion around the legitimacy of estimates are, of course, not new. We have just talked about that in recent times. And again, general economists and social scientists, I guess, are more familiar with the debates around Madison's own GDP data, which it's harder not to be skeptical about them because it's much hard to, to define what GDP is. Yet the problem still persists. Many economists still use Madison historical data. So why? Why do you think scholars keep using them? Um, I mean, I, I can't you know, look into people's souls. My suspicion is it's just too tempting to download something and run a regression, right? And even when you tell them that, let me tell you one example, and it's related to this, and this is, most of my work is on Germany, so I know this very well. Madison's numbers for Germany are based on by a book by a man named Walter Hoffmann, right? Now, Hoffmann wrote a book, I think it's published in the 1960s, giving you GDP and capital stock and so forth estimates for Germany. And he says very, very clearly in the introduction to the book that he's skeptical of many of his results. For example, the capital stock estimates for a long period for Germany are really the estimates for a small part of Germany, right? Which had a very different path of economic development during the 19th century than the rest of the country. So we have all these results in that one country, which really rely on data that the author himself said was probably, you know, uh, flawed. 
Um, my guess is if you went through the under other things underlying uh, Madison's data, because all they did was really you know copy what people did. That's a it's a compendium. But there's many cases in which she's using someone's estimates, although they themselves are skeptical of their estimates. Um, so it is a problem. One other thing about Madison, which I just want to say, is if you look um, before, I think it's like 1500, but maybe in some cases more recent, he's not super clear about this, but his GDP estimates are really population estimates. He assumes there's no change in GDP per capita. So he just takes the population estimate and multiplies it by what he thinks the GDP per capita was, and that's the GDP, right? Now, you know, as economists, we use theory to fill in the blanks. I mean, it's not in principle an illegitimate procedure, but it is a strange thing to do. And I've seen more than one paper using uh, medicine's data to test whether a particular economy is Malthusian. And, you know, all I have to say is, well, he assumed it was, and that's the basis of your data. So it's a it's a strange procedure. It's again the lesson here I think is really read Madison, right? Just read what he says he did. Like understand what is the basis of these numbers. You may actually not use it for certain purposes after reading it. It's not to say. I, by the way, I think Madison what he did was was a very fine thing. It's a great source in the world. It's a great starting point. Um, so I, I'm not opposed to it in general. How can we improve? What are the alternatives of Madison or McEvity and Jens, especially for those of us that want to do kind of cross-country analysis that we are not specialists on Germany or on China or on Africa, and we want to use that kind of data. Okay, I, I, you know, this is a very long way of saying I don't know. You can improve on Madison, I think, for some places just by reading the literature. My guess is that if you, if you actually got a team of people together and they knew enough languages, you could go through and find improved population estimates published in the last 40 years for many countries that are in Macadamian Jones. And Madison did some of that, right? So I think you could do that. That would be improvement. For places like uh, pre-contact Western Hemisphere, I don't know. Um, I used to think that the archaeologists could answer the questions for it. So the archaeologists could look at a place. Well, it turns out the archaeologists, you know, God love them, they have their own debates about when they see a you know, set of stones and they know this was a city. There's wild differences among them about you know, what kinds of populations would be associated with that city. And so, forth. so I think the archaeological evidence is something that should be taken seriously, but I'm not sure it's going to help us that much because they, you know, a lot of the stuff I mentioned for pre-Columbian Western Hemisphere is actually based on archaeological data, and those are these huge differences. I think one thing we have to be used to is... Um, that we can't run regressions in certain contexts, right? Someone who tells you that they know the elasticity of X with respect to Y, relying on cross-sectional data from 500, I just don't see the point. It's, 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 yeah, you can run the regression and you can conditional on certain assumptions about the, the data. You can make inferences the way we usually do, but I don't really see what we think we can learn from that. It's, it's a strange exercise. That's a case where I think the theory is actually going to be more important. I want to end our discussion by asking you, what do you think is the future of economic history in our profession? One of the problems that kind of it's implied is that, well, we use the data, but we do not think hard about it, and maybe we are lazy when we use it. So is that a problem that economists in general have? And what is the future of economic history now? Well, I'm worried. 
um, quite frankly, because it's always been a small part of the economics discipline. And, um, you know, it, it, economic historians would sometimes over a beer at a meeting argue about whether it's thriving or having trouble and so forth. And, and, and I don't know, but I'm worried about the fact that this, what I really saw was wealth. I loved it when people like Asimov started hearing stories. I just couldn't, I just thought that's the best thing that could happen. And I still have enormous respect for him and his co-authors and a lot of other people who do this kind of work. What worries me more and more, though, is that the standards of evidence seem to be falling. And, and if an economic historian says, you know, wait a minute, then they're sort of dismissed as quibbling, right? Like, it's like people have just decided these are not important questions, so we're not going to worry about that. Um, you know, I've seen some, uh, in other contexts, I've seen some debates now where uh, economists are using data sets and the historian, economic historians say, no, 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 that's not what that says, right? And they're just dismissed. And I think it's partly you, know, you get a result you like. You don't want someone telling you you have to rethink it. It's partly, it's easy. I mean, you use the word lazy. That may be part of this. It's easy to just do this stuff. Um, you know, it may be that more and more economists are raised in an atmosphere where data is something you push a button and download it from a website. Right? And and it's, it's created by people, either a modern survey or a modern government or somebody who really knows what they're doing. And you basically trust them because part of the division of labor is they know a lot more about sampling theory and stuff like that. But then when you get to something like historical data, which is often you know, collected in very different ways, sometimes really haphazardly, um, they're, not, they're not prepared to sort of sit down and think about what, that's, what the problems might be. So I don't know. It's another long way of saying I don't know. I worry about it. Right? Thank you very much, Timothy. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you very much for this conversation. I enjoyed it. Economic historians, economists, and social scientists alike are responsible for getting to know the dips and ends of the data used in their research. The perils of not doing so creates systemic risk among our disciplines. It makes our knowledge a house of cards. Getting population estimates right is a top priority, as it is arguably the simplest but most important variable used to understand our societies. This task needs not be complicated. Sometimes, it just implies doing a better job in our literature review. This has been Penn's Exchange, Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga, and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter as at Penn underscore exchange. Stay tuned.